You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So today's pod is with two folks who worked in the Obama White House, uh, Marina Nitza, who is a partner at Layer Aleph, a crisis response firm that specializes in restoring complex software systems to service. And she was the chief technology officer of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs under President Obama after serving as a senior advisor on technology in the White House. And Nick Sinai, is a senior advisor at Insight Partners, a VC and private equity firm, and is adjunct faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School and a senior fellow at the Belfair Center for Science and International Affairs. He served as a U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer in the Obama White House, and prior to that, played a key role in crafting the National Broadband Plan at the FCC. Together, they have co-written a book. It's called Hack Your Bureaucracy, Get Things Done, No Matter What Your Role on Any Team. Enjoy the pop. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting to yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with Marina and Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So you open. Thanks. Thanks. Um, you open the book uh, in a White House cabinet meeting where President Obama is getting frustrated. Marina, can you set that scene and tell us why you start the book with that particular story? Yeah, the, that moment was really um, when I learned kind of the power of the bureaucracy itself, right? So mm-hmm. I was at the VA. I had been uh, tasked with the uh, job description of redefining the art of the possible for how America honors and serves its veterans. And in my first you know, two years there, I was still unable to connect one computer to another computer, which was mm-hmm. a really basic step toward achieving this goal. Um, and it says there was so much paperwork and processes and approvals that had not been updated in decades. Uh, and this led me to being uh, told I was be- I was 
coming to a cabinet meeting where the president was not going to be very happy with my progress. And to, you know, he very kindly tried to help me uh, in that meeting. He offered his help, you know, what can I do? And it was an eye-opening moment of like, oh my gosh, even the president of the United States can't get through this IT security paperwork. Like the only way through it is through it. Yeah. So Nick, this is a thing that comes up early, which is I think we, many of us have a preconceived notion that once you get to the top, you can just make things happen. Um, and once you work inside a bureaucracy, you figure out, actually, that's not at all how things work. Yeah. It, you know, the whole point of our book is is that there's a natural rhythm to a bureaucracy and there's a set of, uh, of motions and, 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 and ways that bureaucracies work. And it's almost a fallacy that the, the the top person gets to set everything. Everything the top person says kind of happens. Uh, bureaucracies can 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 uh, accelerate or slow down, but at the end of the day, uh, it also helps uh, if people inside that that organization want to get something done. And frankly, that's how a lot of really great initiatives start. Is there's some uh, organic momentum, and then then the leader champions it or takes it, and it's ready to kind of. Uh, get some more air, air cover. So not everything starts from from the top down. Occasionally that happens, and you see some some great initiatives and policies that happen that way. But oftentimes leaders are responding responding to the facts on the ground. And we wrote this book really to empower change agents inside of organizations, big and small, saying, "Hey, don't wait for your leader to, you know, come down from on high of of what's going to happen. Is force his or her hand in a very positive uh, sense." I was really surprised, pleasantly so, about the how the book is organized because it's these. It's almost like a handbook I, I, it, it, where where you have these very short chapters with these these very salient ideas that um, I think because you keep them sort of short and sticky with the stories, they stick more. So I found myself even in my own leadership role here at Second City introducing some some of these things. Um, and one of the things I talked about, uh, because we need to build a new website, because our website's terrible, uh, you talk about uh, that the UK government, they have a policy that a cabinet minister must successfully use a website or application before it launches to the public. So I, I like, I don't, where'd you first hear about that? Because that's very funny. Uh, so uh, a lot of us, our work in the government around uh, the United States Digital Service was modeled off uh, the government digital service in the UK. So I looked at them pretty readily, um, especially when I was trying to do a digital transformation work at the VA. I was constantly looking at the UK. Well, one of our tactics is actually go second, which is like a great way to get your bureaucracy to move is to point out that they uh, someone else has already done it first and that they should do it second. And so in my case, since I didn't have examples in the United States, I was like, hey, look, the UK already did this. So now we yeah. should do, do something like this. And we did that at the VA. You know, our secretary and our deputy secretary would try out all of our applications before we launched them. Yeah. So specifically, uh, I was designated at the, as the person who has to check out the... <laughs> be able to do the app because I'm just so useless on a computer. So nice work uh, there. Um, uh, you also talk about, Nick, uh, the power of asking questions. Um, and I love that because uh, as we were talking about before we we started taping, uh, our work at the University of Chicago, in particular with uh, Nick Epley, talks about that people underestimate uh, the power of asking a good question in terms of uh, both for your own uh, understanding what's going on, but getting other people to re- reveal things that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, we're, we're big fans of, of um, asking newbie questions. There's really the power of, of someone new to an organization is almost given uh, a free pass to, to ask what, what may seem as naive 
or, or, you know, you may feel it's a stupid question, but the longer you're in an organization, the more you're afraid to ask those questions. And so there's, there's just this tremendous power of being a newbie, whether you're, you're early in your career or, or whether you're coming in as a senior executive. It just gives you tremendous, uh, power because you're, you're able to question assumptions. And that's another one of our, uh, tactics is about relaxing constraints and really, uh, if you're able to ask those questions and, and ask why in a non-threatening way, uh, you'll find out that, that maybe there were a, a, a set of, of rules or processes or, or cultural norms that made sense uh, at some point in the past, but they need to be updated for the way the world works now. Um, and so we're big fans of, of continuing to try and play the newbie card, even when your 30, 60, 90 days have, have extinguished. If you can keep that, that new spirit and ask questions, um, you'll find ways to, to really powerfully uh, um, uh, uh, get people to reveal their their uh, knowledge and their lack of knowledge too in, in a in an authentic way. I'm curious for both of you though. Like, okay, now in your career, do you do you have like some sort of personal hack for yourself to make sure that you do ask those questions? Yeah, I think uh, it, part of it is maybe not being shy, but it's also regularly putting yourself in a position where you can be a newbie. Um, you know, I do a lot of IT crisis consulting and I just go in and ask really basic questions, but in a safe, confident way. You can't respond to those uh, questions in, in a way where you're like, hey, aren't you're so stupid. Why do you not know this? It's really about creating a safe space so that the other people around you can can maybe hear the answers as well. Yeah. My uh, my uh, uh, former colleague, Tom Yorton, used to always ask the question, what problem are, you, are we trying to solve? Because that was always, it was always like, maybe we need to go a level three or four before this to figure out when we got to this place. Uh, and I find that that's a, a very powerful question. Yeah, the five whys, right, from the Toyota Production Management School. But it really, really works where you keep asking why until you get to the root cause. And so often when you get to the root, either it doesn't exist, it's a water cooler rule that everybody's just been operating under as though it existed, but it doesn't exist in the first place. Or you'll get down to a policy that may give you way more flexibility than you realize. Um, you have a chapter titled Beware of Red Teams and Problem Lists. Uh, t- talk talk to us about those. Yeah, I learned this lesson the really hard way. So um Early in my government career, I was in charge of auditing how the VA processed disability claims. And then I wrote this like 95-point plan of pointing out all the problems and all the things that the VA was doing wrong. And I was so proud of my list of problems. Well, fast forward a year, I am now the chief technology officer of the VA. And at that point, the White House finally sent my report that I had written to the VA to respond to. And now it was my job to respond to my own 96-point problem list. And it sucked because it made me realize like the me a year ago did not fully appreciate some of the nuances, some of the challenges, and it it became a tremendous chore. And so I think it's common uh, for people to come into a new space and say like, look at all the things that are wrong. And, and they can get really positive recognition for that. And most of the tactics in our book are positive ones, are things to do. But this yeah. is one we really want to discourage. You know, if you want to keep a list, maybe keep it in your desk to yourself, but resist the urge to publicly announce it. Yeah, another another um, uh, risk that you talk about in the book is blowing everything up, uh, which I think a lot of people walk into, especially new leaders walk in and, and just that that's a, a, an impulse for them. What, what Talk about the downsides about that. Yeah, I think that was my temptation yeah. when I first joined government. I thought the whole thing should be blown up and we should get rid of the whole thing. I really deeply believe that. And I was lucky to work for people like Nick, like Richard Kulata and others who taught me that, no, 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 no. If you 
blow it up, that it's something new is going to be created in its place. And it's going to have a whole new bunch of externalities and problems that you can't even begin to predict. But if you can actually start making changes from inside the bureaucracy, it may be a little slower than you may want, but you can actually design something that's incredibly effective. Nick, can you add to that? Yeah. So I, I worked in the White House for four years and we'd, we'd see all kinds of really impressive people come in uh, as uh, you know former executives or entrepreneurs who had been extraordinarily successful and and many of them would fail in in the administration and you'd ask why and it's because they jumped right to the disruption right to the uh, solutioning rather than really understanding an organization its mission its policies its rules and most importantly its people uh, and understanding why particular ideas had been tried and failed um, and so if you were going to propose an idea to actually understand kind of the history of, of why, why it hadn't, hadn't worked in the past. And if you could, if you could figure that out and befriend, uh, those people who had tried and failed in the past, you would have a tremendous set of, of advocates and you'd be much more likely to figure it out. But it's, it's kind of like know thy enemy. You have to, you have to know the organization before you just say, this is, this is all crap and we're just going to blow it all up. Like that, that, that just doesn't work. Uh, uh, even if you're a hotshot uh, change agent, a hotshot entrepreneur. In fact, uh, organizations have antibodies, right? And and so there's the old joke about, yeah, we got it, boss. You know, we're the we're the B team. You're the A team. We'd be here before you. We'll be here after you. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, organizations will will wait out those kinds of uh, um, disruptions if they if if they see someone who doesn't really respect and understand uh, the organization. Uh, there's a, a line you have in the book, which is something I talk about all the time because I work at an improv based comedy theater. And a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about like, well, you're just making it up. And, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, but to just make it up, you have to have a lot of, uh, rules, uh, a lot of understandings, a lot of rituals. And very specifically, you write in the book, quote, constraints can unleash creativity. And that's what we find here. We find that if you, if we give uh, like no instruction and, 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 you know, no guardrails, uh, you're, you're not going to get anything specific or, or funny. Um, but you give someone a kind of a tight box to work in and amazing creativity can follow that. I wish I could help on that one. <laughs> Why do you say that? Oh, cause I'm, I'm just not funny. Well, I don't know. Marina, is he not funny? No, Nick, we'll get you in an improv class. You just, you guys got to relax the constraints. <laughs> All right. So, but uh, Marina, talk to me about that. What, 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 where do you see that showing up in your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is actually can be a real superpower in a bureaucracy because inherently, no matter the older and the larger that it is, the more rules, regulations, um, people who themselves are going to have frameworks and rules and, and things that they're going to need. Um, one of my favorite stories here at the VA was I was trying to um, update our website every day, which doesn't sound all that crazy, but at the time the VA updated its websites every quarter. So mm-hmm. um, the change management team was not into my idea because they were like, how can we possibly review every change on a daily basis? We, we don't want this at all. And so they were putting a hard constraint on me of like, no, we're, we're going to vote no on this. And I tried everything. I, I tried to befriend them. I tried to teach them our tooling. I tried to earn trust. I tried to find faster ways for them to review it. None of those things worked. And ultimately, one day I realized, you know, thinking like, how can I possibly work through this impossible situation that I needed them? I didn't need them to vote. Yes, I just needed them to vote. So Mm -hmm. I automated their no vote. 
uh, in my automatic. So every time I was going to update the website, I showed them, I was like, it's going to say right here in black and white that you did not approve this change. And they were like, we love that. Absolutely. So I took this seemingly impossible constraint, which was that this team was going to vote no every single time. And it took them two weeks to vote no every time. And I automated their no vote. So I now accomplished my goal and I met their needs fully by um, absolving them of any responsibility should my change go awry. So I'm curious, there's a, there seems to be a deep understanding of the uh, um, human decision-making, human behavior. Did you get, did both of you study this in, in college or is this all work experience? All work experience. Uh, we call this the Sinatra test, which is he has that song, My Way. You know, if I made it here in New York, I can make it anywhere. And so uh, a lot of the our book, it has lots of stories about everyday people and homeowners associations and teachers and others. But the idea is, hey, if this worked in the White House, Department of Defense, the VA, Harvard and venture capital, it will also work in like your organization. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Nick, uh, we, we were just talking about uh, the power of constraints, but you guys also talk about relaxing fixed constraints. And you have a story about floating an idea um, to a senior advisor of the FCC chairman. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So um, uh, this, this is a particular gentleman, Josh Gottenheimer, who's actually gone on to be a, a congressman um, for New Jersey. Uh, but at the time, he was a, a, a kind of senior political advisor to Julius Janikowski, who's the chair of the FCC. And uh, we sat down with him, um, and he's a bit older than us. He's a former Clinton speechwriter, so he kind of is a, a, a wise hand in Washington already. And, and we were kind of younger staffers, and we floated this idea of, of essentially uh, um, increasing the, the um, surcharge that the FCC puts on, on all telephone service to help fund broadband uh, to schools, because at the time, schools were really not getting the kind of broadband um, in the classroom. And, and it, was, it was quite tragic and uh, not not fair. And, 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 you know, we're not accomplishing a lot of our policy goals. And so we floated this idea to him, and he, and he basically shut us down, said we were out of our lane. He said, right. you know, Senator Rockefeller, who's the, the chair of the Commerce Committee at the time, is like, you know, Rockefeller will never go for it. His people will never go for it, et cetera. Um, and this was a constraint that he and the, and the entire FCC had in their mind is that this powerful senator said this program was not to be touched. And, you know, maybe we were naive, but we said, well, what if we relax that constraint? And sure enough, the FCC and the White House went and, and talked to Rockefeller's people. And they said, you know, uh, actually, we would be open to it. We'd be interested. And so it turned into this whole policy initiative. Uh, and, and ultimately, the FCC ended up uh, raising the cap, raising billions of dollars, and and uh, schools actually got modern broadband uh, during the Obama administration. Um, and it's really the story of, uh, you know, there's a constraint, but if you just if you just say, can we relax it for a second and just think, what if? And then you know, you can always be told that constraint is 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 in greater steel or concrete than you think it is. But too often, whether it's in politics, in policy, in your company, your nonprofit, you think something is is a, a constraint in steel. When it may actually be be a, a softer constraint that you can just put push down and, and with a little bit of work, uh, um, kind of knock through. Yeah, I mean that that's the, that mirrors the improv philosophy of yes and. You know this this idea of like it's not all the way through. This is five minutes at the beginning of a brainstorm. It's just a way to allow a lot of different ideas and we can look at them. And invariably, you know, good new stuff shows up uh, because you've just taking a beat to not say no. It's a, it can be as little as that. Uh, Marina, maybe my favorite story in the book is the one about your love of dry erase boards. Um, can you tell that story? 
Yeah, absolutely. I love dry erase boards so much that when I started working at the White House in the part of your bio where it says, you know, like your husband and your pets, I said I lived in Seattle, Washington with my dry erase board collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I started at the VA, as I mentioned earlier, I had this job description of redefining the art of the possible for how America honors and serves its veterans. Um, But I had a zero headcount and a zero dollar budget. And I one of my very first things I tried to do was buy a dry erase board in the federal government. But turns out that was one hundred and five dollars and I only had a ninety nine dollar office budget. Um, So it actually took me the entire time that I was at the VA, five years of earning political capital building up a workforce, working on multi-million dollar transformations, that in my last month in office, uh, the Board of Veterans Appeals presented me with my very own dry erase board after five years of work. I love that. Um, uh, a funny thing in, in sort of contemporary Second City in the last year or two, um, I at, at the end of almost every uh, creative conversation, uh, it's it's understood that I'm going to go create a one sheet. Like, like, because like, we're, we're, you know, we, we were shut down for a, a year, uh, essentially, and went through all, a, an ownership change and all these other and lost a ton of people. And so in many ways, we, we have a awesome opportunity in terms of rebuilding and embracing the things that we know we were good at and changing the things that maybe we weren't. So Nick, can you talk to us a little bit about like this importance in terms of writing it down and the fact that no, it actually is one sheet? Yeah, well, you know, everyone's got a good idea. Uh, ideas are cheap, right? And, yep. and, um, but, but ideas are also framed by your understanding of the, uh, of the rules, your under, your, your understanding of, uh, you know, your lived experience, et cetera. And if you, if you put something down on, on a sheet of paper, then at least you're looking at the same idea, the same examples. Uh, um, and, and so there's, there's a lot less lost in translation. And so, you know, in the White House, I was a huge fan of, of uh, getting people to write it down on a one pager. And one pagers are actually read. Once you get to two, three, four, five, six page memos, like the, just fewer and fewer people read those. Um, and if you do a one pager right, you know you you have the bottom line up front. You have a crisp uh, uh, articulation of the problem, the proposed solution, uh, a fact or anecdote uh, that that really illustrates that, and some concrete next steps. And that's hard to do in one page. Uh, but if you do that, not just in isolation, but if you do that with uh, colleagues. So you, you share it for feedback and you incorporate their feedback. And over time, you're actually building consensus about an idea rather than just dropping it on them cold. And so I was a huge fan of any time, whether they were, you know, in, in an executive branch agency or if they were outside of the government. But if someone came to me with an idea, I'd be like, yeah, that's great. It's this yes. And um, why don't you why don't you write me a one pager? Um, and it's a good way also to see how serious they are about it. Um, th- some people came prepared. Uh, but some people, most people, uh, you know, did not have a one pager at the ready. And then you see whether they're, 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 how serious they are and how passionate they are. Because if you can't communicate that idea, then how is, how are you going to socialize it across, uh, you know, a, a large organization? Yeah. This is something that I think, uh, uh, they don't teach well enough in any, any across all educational sectors is the importance of brevity communication. Because it, like everything moves so fast. And I was thinking about this and I was so sad to see that Ash Carter passed away because he was on the podcast um, uh, when he released his book. And I got to share with him this, this story, uh, which is um, we were doing a corporate workshop in Washington and we were teaching this improv exercise called 60-30-10. So basically you tell uh, the person across from you who you are in 60 seconds, then you do it in 30 seconds, and then you do it in 10 seconds. And a woman in the workshop raises her hand and was Ash Carter's wife. She goes, oh, that's what, what you have to do when you go to the Oval when you're talking to Obama. 
And it was like, and, and he's like, oh, I remember she talked about that being in this improv class. And, and I think that that idea of tailoring your pitch that you talk about, and I want to share with you my basically one Obama story. So I don't know if you remember, we did a show called Between Barack and a Hard Place. Did that ever <laughs> come across? I am a huge Second City fan. I did not go to that show. No. So this was when he was running. So uh, and 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 no one at that point thought he was going to win, right? I mean, that, this is and and our the conceit of that show was everyone saw themselves in in, in Obama, and Michelle had come with uh, uh, his half sister, and we had a, a nice conversation afterwards, and then brought him back for like a little fundraiser. So it was sort of a mini version of the show. So. I was at the time the producer of Second City and I'm with our owner and we greet him in the sort of, you know, backstairs. And he's very, he's very cordial. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm uh, a great fan. Blah, blah, blah. And we're like, do you want to meet the actors before uh, the event starts? He goes, yeah. And the minute he walked backstage, he's like, you guys. And he just completely changed his tone and his manner to fit. And it wasn't inauthentic. It was just, it was that other sort of version of himself. Um, and, and, and we all just like, we had such a great experience, uh, meeting him. So talk to us more about the importance around tailoring your pitch to fit the different audiences and especially, um, authentically that, that this isn't about sort of inauthentically becoming someone else. So I think uh, something that we really encourage in the book is understanding other humans and what, where they're coming from, what their risk and incentive frameworks are. Are they motivated by, you know, recognition, by, power by money by simply doing the right thing everybody's got their their things and when you're tailoring the pitch you know if you're going to to slightly oversimplify this but if if you're going to accounting or people that are really stressing about the budget you want to make sure that you're hitting the notes of you know how this is going to save money or how this is going to be budget dust or whatever it may be and if you're talking to somebody about their strategic plan you want them to see how your project is going to fit very nicely into their strategic plan if you try to explain how it's going to be all things to all people uh your message gets really watered down. And so we really want to encourage you to think about that might mean a few different one pagers and that's okay. But thinking about what the other person that you're trying to sell values and how you can show how your, your piece um, tags up there. And to include if someone else enjoys, you know, coffee meetings versus going out for happy hour versus, you know, a formal meeting, you can meet that where they are um, and, and try to meet them on their, on their ground and their terms. And Nick, this also sort of lines up with this idea that if you're trying to make initiatives at work, you are a salesperson, right? The, 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 there's just no way around it. Yeah, we have a chapter called Sell Baby Sell. And uh, I do a lot of work in, in venture capital with uh, some of our uh, uh, sales leaders in our, in our software companies, startups and scale-ups. And um, uh, the more that I spend time with them, the more I realize that being a change agent inside of an organization is, is fundamentally an enterprise sales job uh, because salespeople are qualifying opportunities. That mm-hmm. is, they are they are listening to hear whether people really have uh, um, pain that they, you know a problem that they really have to solve, whether they really have budget, whether they really want to buy this year. So there's a whole uh, um, art and science to to enterprise selling. Uh, it could be commercial software, it could be anything. But but great salespeople are are not just great listeners, but they're also great qualifiers. Uh, focusing their time. And that's true if you're going to be a, a change agent inside of an organization. If you are pitching the wrong person or spending all of your time in, in places that aren't uh, going to yield much progress, then you're not going to be very effective. And so you, you want to build uh, increasing uh, enthusiasm. You want to get additional resources. 
You want to get additional people to help you and unblock you and champion and, and provide budget and all those kinds of things. And that fundamentally is a sales job. And so that is, yes, crafting your, miss- your message and, and, and tailoring the pitch to the, to the right level and to the right kind of function. Uh, but it's also about that qualification and seeing who, who's really with you, right? Because people can head nod just the same way a prospect for a salesperson can head nod, but are they actually going to buy? Someone can head nod inside of an organization, but are they going to actually sponsor you to have a conversation with the CEO? Are they actually going to provide some budget or resources or, or help you out with, you know, provide some space to help you get going, right? And so it's that, that, that qualification and that kind of, um, that, that persistence, I think, uh, as well as the messaging, uh, is why uh, change inside of an organization is, is fundamentally, in part, a sales job. Uh, we're, I'm interviewing uh, Paul Zak, who's a, a neuroscientist, and, and talks about that liking some. When people say they like something, is absolutely meaningless. Um, he, he he studies the release of oxytocin in, in the brain, which is all uh, something tied to emotion. So what I know, and I, I was actually listening across the hall for me as the head of sales, and he's training some new people, and he was giving notes on a on a call, sales call. He's like, "Look, you 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 talked a little too much." You, you want to ask the question and then let them answer. And it's okay to have space because they might find something else. And also you're looking for what's emotionally uh, uh, relevant and resonant uh, in, in the things they're talking about. And if you can get to that, that's where you can, where you can hook people. Um, and this is, and this, this isn't easy because it's like, it's, I don't, again, I don't think most people get trained in this stuff. No, I, I, I don't think that um, sales is, is respected enough. Uh, but my my friend uh, Kumar Garg, our, our mutual friend Marina Zanaz, he likes to say that you know sales is the one thing that you can't give away, right? So yeah. what is a university president fun- fundamentally doing? Selling the university? Yeah. You know what is what 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 is a, a senator or a president fundamentally doing? You know selling. At the end of the day, uh, when you get to the top of an organization, part of the job, a good part of the job is fundamentally selling the vision of that organization, selling the mission selling the people and, and your belief in those people, right? And so in, in a very authentic way, uh, I don't mean uh, people sometimes have a kind of a pejorative uh, sense of, of, of sales, but I, I think it's incredibly uh, underloved discipline and yet so, so critical uh, in public and private sector. Okay, which one of you is the Vonnegut fan? Uh, That's think- you. I, so, uh, huge fan, and I had my freshman year, I went to Ithaca College, and I used to audit uh, stuff at Cornell to make myself feel smarter, and one of them was a Vonnegut class. So, I got, I actually got, I did about six weeks, uh, just, and he just talked and told stories. So, talk to us about this idea, and it comes from Cat's Cradle uh, of Karis. Yeah, so uh, cultivate the crass. So, uh, in Cat's Cradle, a crass is the concept that God has hidden people around the world who are destined to come together and solve a mission. Mm-hmm. Um, we use it in more of a secular way. Um, and it's actually also an homage to our late colleague, Jake Brewer. He kept this post-it note that said, cultivate the crass on his computer in the White House. And he was tragically killed in a bicycle accident while he was working with us. Um, and so this became kind of something of our motto. But the idea is so many people believe that they're in a bureaucracy and that everybody around is actually hidden and is secretly conspiring against them, right? They're, they're blocking you. They're there slowing you down. They're there to slow roll you. And we propose that you actually look at this in an alternate way, which is people are hidden around your organization who are there to help you. Um, and you never know who they may be. I learned this lesson um, in one of the most fun ways at VA where I was really struggling. Um, I was going to get a few million dollars of budget. 
if I could move a thousand web pages from the old contract to a new thing, and I had nobody around me to help. But as I was, uh, you know, pondering this problem, I was talking to the security guard, and it occurred to me that hey, we have a security guard on every level of this building. They all have computers, and they have a little bit of free time on their hands. So I said, hey, what if I taught you HTML at lunch? Could you help me with this problem? And all of them were like, absolutely, we'll help you, Marina. You know, you've been nice to us and know our names mm-hmm. and whatever. So they show up at my my lunch class. They help me. I get my multi-million dollar budget. Um, the security guards all subsequently quit and go into IT jobs. So maybe it wasn't <laughs> the best thing for the VA. But it really taught me that like, wow, I had this incredibly powerful ally in the security guards, which is maybe not one of the first places everybody would have looked. And since then, I've tried to look in all sorts of unconventional places for who my who my caress may be. I love that. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you both for yes and stories. But before that, I've, uh, I want you to share uh, to uh, each of you share a story from the book. Uh, Nick, uh, talk about the Harvard class that you uh, were at with David Gergen. Um, uh, David Gergen, uh, who runs a research center, or he ran a research center at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, big time uh, uh, professor, uh, you know, has advised uh, four White Houses and four four presidents, always on on TV in my mom's house on CNN. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and he was b- very, very kind to me. And he said, you know, would you come guest lecture at my class? And I was just being a little flip. And I said, uh, you know, I'm only on campus on Fridays. And he said, OK, no problem. And he moved his entire class to Friday. So now I'm totally chagrined. And I have a uh, hundred students and, and David Gergen was great in that he did a little fireside chat and we're describing, or I'm talking about, uh, different ways to get things done in the White House. And it's, it's kind of weird that I'm telling his class on how to get things done in the White House. But anyway, I'm describing this whiteboard that we used to keep in the White House with a bunch of sayings. And uh, one of those sayings was White House tribes, hacks versus walks. And hacks being the, the people who come from the political campaigns and the uh, communication folks and the wonks being the economists and the MBAs and the, the, the people who are more deep in the weeds of, of policies. And so I said, um, so you see, uh, I'm a wonk and you're a hack. Mm-hmm. And there's a really uncomfortable silence. Because you just called David Gergen a hack. <laughs> in front of his, his class of a hundred, 120 people. And it was this really uncomfortable silence. And I'm just like sweating. And I, you know, and he's, he's actually much taller, more intimidating in person. Mm -hmm. And he served in the Navy. I'm sure he, he, he he could kick my butt, um, even being much older. And he just kind of leans in and frowns. And I'm like, Oh my God. And finally he breaks the silence and he says, you're absolutely right. You know, I wish I had known this before I'd started working with, with Larry Summers. Mm Mm-hmm. And and he just goes on to say, you know, this this idea of understanding the different tribes, we call them guilds in the in the book, yeah. but understanding these different guild guilds is super important because people have lived experiences and they have a whole set of assumptions going on. If you're an economist who's on loan from the University of Chicago, you know, at the Council of Economic Advisors in the in the White House, just the way you see the world is very different if you've come off the campaign or been on a series of campaigns. Right. And those two people colliding and trying to communicate about economic policy that they want the president to talk about are just going to see the world in such a different way. And if you can't understand that some people may come from from this a very different perspective, uh, you're going to fail to be uh, uh, very effective uh, uh, in trying to get something done. 
Well, this is Kahneman and Tversky, right? The system one, system two thinking, and that we have the shortcut and we make all these assumptions on people. And if we just take some time and it, it feels so good to be seen that that you, you just up, up the ante on that. Uh, Marina, uh, jiggling the doorknob story. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the challenges at, at the VA that I was facing that, that ultimately led to me getting called into the cabinet meeting um, was getting. Thing, uh, I wanted to use cloud computing, which I don't know, your audience doesn't have to be very technical, but basically, man, instead of running websites on a computer underneath somebody's desk or in a mop closet, they should be running in like professional computing environments. And uh, one of the many questions that I had to fill out on this paperwork was me confirming that I had jiggled the doorknob of the server room to make sure that it's locked. Now, when your computer is in your office or in a closet, that's not a big deal. But, you know, Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud or Microsoft frown upon letting you onto their campus to jiggle the doorknob. Um, And so I tried everything I could to get through this paperwork. I tried to write not applicable. It got kicked back. I tried to leave it blank. It got kicked back. I tried to explain like metaphorically how I had jiggled the doorknob in my mind. And that got kicked back. Um, because ultimately, at the end of the day, the person whose job it was to approve that paperwork, they were going to be left holding the bag and in the investigation and the audit, and I was going to be long gone. And they knew that. And so what I had to do was change the paperwork itself, which sounds like a much harder process. But in fact, changing the paperwork only involved a committee of five people who really readily understood mm-hmm. what I was trying to do and let me do it. And when I changed the paperwork, I then changed the incentive. So actually, you couldn't answer it anymore if you had a computer under your desk or in a mop closet. You could no longer put, you know, veterans data underneath the fire, you know, in a mop closet underneath the fire sprinkler. Uh, and so I really encourage people. That was a, a really powerful lesson that you might be able to change the process or the paperwork itself. And that's, to me, one of the core lessons of the book is you have to use the bureaucracy against itself to make it to make what you want to have happen. The easiest path, the path of least risk and least resistance for everybody else. I love that. Uh, all right. We always end, end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. So, Nick, do you have a story for us? You know, just about every single day that I worked at the White House for four years, someone would come in and and say, the president should do this. The president should write an executive order. The president should say this in a speech. The pre- and, and initially, you know, I would just say no very politely and try and dan- dance around it. And then, then I realized uh, uh, as time went on that it was far better to say yes and uh, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, yes, the president should say, say those kinds of things. And here's the way that you can strengthen your coalition. Yes. And here's the way that, and it's not like they really thought that I, as a, uh, you know, lowly staffer was going to waltz into the oval and be like, Hey, I just met with, <laughs> with this particular trade group or the CEO or this, this university president or whoever. And they said, you should do this. And therefore, you know, we're going to write an executive order. That's not really the way things get done, right? right. Uh, um, uh, at least not with that, that sense of immediacy, right? There's a whole set of, of, of process, uh, 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 a bunch of different levels and paper and so forth. And, and this idea of, yes, you're right, the president should do that and say that, but you should build a coalition. Like you, but you should, you should create, change the facts on the ground that, that, that make it easier for the president to champion this idea, right? Because this is, gets back to where we started this conversation is rather than have the big guy or gal at top start, it's, it, it, it make them reactive, make them excited to champion the thing that you're, you're coming here to propose. Yeah, there's an improv uh, uh, and it's a storytelling uh, concept as well, which is start in the middle. Uh, and often what you have to get people is like, hey, that's actually probably a more interesting place if you just dispose with all the introductions and the other things and like, let's get into the action of it and then work from there. Uh, Marina, do you have a story for us? 
Yeah. And before, I just want to note, you commented earlier that you like like the format of our book with all the mini chapters. I just want to give credit that it was Improv Wisdom by Patricia Madsen that really oh. inspired uh, a lot of that format. So thank you. Thank you to that. Love uh, yes, my, yes and story. Um, the way I entered the federal government was a program that Nick helped create called the Presidential Innovation Fellows. And mm-hmm. they put out a call for some tech savvy entrepreneurs that wanted to come inside government and be disruptive. And when I heard that, I thought I would be the last person on the entire planet that would be qualified for this. Um, and, but they said, if you sent in your resume, you'd be added to their mailing list. So I sent in my resume thinking I would just be added to the mailing list and nobody would ever consider me. So when I got a call from Richard Kulata at the department of education, offering me, uh, the role, I was living in Seattle, minding my own business, had my own company, definitely did not want to go do that. But instead I said, yes, and I will be there on Tuesday because it just sounded just crazy enough. I thought I'd just be there for six months, uh, ended up, uh, serving for, almost seven years. And uh, I continue serving in this, the uh, sense of I work in foster care reform at the state level uh, now. So I'm glad I said yes. The book is called Hack Your Bureaucracy, Get Things Done No Matter What Your Role on Any Team. Uh, Marina and Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having us. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.